Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're still in Exodus. We're in Exodus 34 now, and uh, in the afternoon show, we did uh, uh, we touched on milk and meat uh, because there's a bizarre quote in uh, Exodus, I think 29, and it's also here in Exodus 34, and it's also in Deuteronomy. They're talking about seething a goat, a kid goat, in its mother's milk. And uh, that has morphed itself into a huge uh, section of a lot of Orthodox and semi-Orthodox Jewish folklore that you're not to mix meat and milk at a meal. And that, you know, I've, I know... Uh, people who uh, raised in the Jewish persuasion, I'll refer to it as the Jewish persuasion rather than, you know, uh, some sort of bloodline. But uh, they, a lot of them have contended with this issue of mixing meat and milk. And you can't have the two touching each other. I mean, they can touch each other in your stomach, but you have to wash their mouth out before you eat, drink your milk or eat your meat after you've done one or the other. And you can't have your fork touching. It can't be fixed in the same pot. And Jesus makes reference to this at the time. It didn't really appear anywhere as far as I can see until around the second temple. Uh, And it's a bizarre interpretation. But it's just one of many bizarre interpretations within the text. So, like I said, we touched on it in the afternoon show. I've already got those recordings up uh, under an article called Milk and meat and the places where you see in in, uh, the text where it's talking about seething a kid in its mother's milk uh, there'll be a link to that article on milk and meat and uh, so you can go listen to that uh, after the show obviously and uh, you can get a little bit of an idea I've added a great deal more to that page I know I'm going to add a great deal more to that because I've been finding it and then as we go on through 34 and 35, we're going to come to a place where if you start a fire, kindle a fire in your dwelling, you shall be put to death. <laughs> That's another one of those interpretations. And it comes from these translations. Now, are the translations 100% accurate? Well, they're accurate enough for me, but I don't depend upon the tree of knowledge for what I know to be true. What I know to be true is dependent upon the Holy Spirit or what used to be called the tree of life. When you walk with God and you listen to God. Now, I'm not really as good at it as people like Moses or Abraham. Uh, and I, I yearn and pray for the day that I would be. But I have no power over that day. Because I just wait upon the Lord. And that's one of the things that everybody has to do, is wait upon the Lord. Which is why when I talk about meditation, I refer to meditation as waiting upon the Lord. It's 
it often involves a certain amount of quieting your mind, but not willfully quieting your mind, and but quieting your mind by willing to look at the fact that how quiet your mind is not really at the moment. <laughs> how much noise is going on in your head. And people would be amazed at how much noise is going on in their head, many people, if they tried to sit still and not be distracted by anything. Uh, and, of course, you know, they have people who have meditation. And, and we've done a lot of shows on meditation. You can probably look that up at Preparing You. There's an article on meditation, and I'm sure I've got some recordings there that talk about it. What is it? It's a, it's a form of prayer. It, it's an actual active form of prayer, usually when you're sitting still. So that that act, what you learn during that active form of prayer while you're sitting still can be used as you go out through the day. Because as you go out through the day, I had a conversation with somebody, uh, just in the last 24 hours about how devious people, wicked people, people who have evil lurking in them will go about Doing mischief. And, and we, I use that word that we see in the Bible. Going about doing mischief. And of course now in your workplace, uh, in, in, you know, wherever you, you know, gather with other people in workplace, sometimes in churches, you know, uh, the different places where you are interacting with other people on a regular basis so it's the same guys, you know, like in an office or something. There's always this a drama that we see taking place in those places. And, of course, if you go to places like Washington, D.C. or the state capitol, whatever city you're in, there's drama going on in those places. The more power you have involved in the place that we're talking about, this this closed group of a place, whether it's a corporation or a state, which is often a, just another form of corporation, where these people have to work together in an office and interact and there's rules, you can't do this and you can't do that and everything. There is an element of mischief that goes about. I've seen it on ranches even, where you have hired men and women working on the ranch and I've seen owners of the ranch actually just fire somebody, been a good worker for years, but just fired them because they were causing trouble amongst the other employees. Now, when you work on a ranch, a lot of the time today, in this day and age, you're, you know, you may be doing irrigation and somebody else is doing haying, and if he's doing haying, maybe he's, he's just doing cutting of the hay and somebody else is doing the raking and somebody else is doing the baling and you might switch around in some of those positions, but it gets very specialized, not complicated, but you're in charge of doing this. And, and with any kind of interactive teamwork like that, although you're in different machines and everything, the way in which you do your job it will affect somebody else's job. You know, if you don't do, if you don't, if you're the fence builder for the ranch, and you don't do a good job building the fence, that's going to make more work for the cow hand. (laughs) 
And, of course, you can see the same thing in offices or in governments. If you don't carry your weight, somebody else is going to have to do that. And so what's the motivation to carry your weight? Well, fear of being fired or a desire to do a good job. Or how about this? Because you love all the other people in the office and you want to do everything you can to make their job more efficient, more effective, uh, not necessarily always easier, but so that no undue burden will fall on them. And, of course, that's pretty rare these days because people don't really love their neighbor as themselves. If you're in a church or a congregation, that would be the same feeling. If you're in a church established by Jesus Christ, that isn't just a suggestion, that's essential. Because in the church established by Jesus Christ, those Christians who are actually following the words of Christ are providing all the social welfare for their congregation and all other congregations that are gathering in the name of the Lord. Plus, they're not oppressing the stranger in their midst. They're not, they're not, you know, being jealous and envious of other people and they're trying to be a friend to all men, but they have certain moral standards that they won't cross certain lines that make us peculiar to the rest of the world. Which is, one, we won't go to the fathers of the earth and the men who call themselves benefactors and say, will you give me benefits at the expense of my neighbor? Because we all would know that that's a covetous practice. And that would make us merchandise, according to Peter, and curse our children, according to Peter. And it's also forbidden in the Ten Commandments by Moses, and of course forbidden by Paul, that we were not to covet our neighbor's goods, and that covetousness is actually idolatry. That's right. Idolatry is covetousness, and covetousness is idolatry. That's what the scripture says. I didn't make it up. They said it. And we're going to see in 34 how that plays in the ongoing saga of moving from a place where you're in the bondage of Egypt, which is at the beginning of Exodus, where things are getting worse and worse and worse. You know, whatever burdens they had on you, like 20% of your labor belonged to the government in the bondage of Egypt. If you made... A hundred bricks, 20 of them belonged to the government of Egypt. I don't know exactly how they collected that. Did they do it the first of every month or did they wait till the month of Adar to do it? <laughs> but basically, your, a portion of your labor belonged to the government. Now, like if you were a goldsmith and you were making jewelry, I suppose they could find work for you because they had a lot of the jewelry, but there might be jobs that you do that they don't need that service. But you still owe them 20%, and there's no real valuable money in circulation at that time. There were clay scarabs that people used, but most people weren't allowed to own silver and gold. That was all in the hands of the government. And some of it was used in trade with foreign countries. But a lot of the trade with foreign countries was also done through the government. Because, like, if you grew grain, 20% of your grain went to the government. And they could sell the surplus. 
they could sell it abroad where and demand silver and gold in payment. If they sold it within Egypt, they were competing against other people who were already growing grain, and that could cause the price of grain to drop. But if they sold it abroad, they could bring lots of money into the treasury of Egypt. Now, a certain portion of that grain that was given to Egypt, 20% of the grain that you produced, and you might grow barley and you might grow wheat. They talk about growing corn, but corn didn't come over yet. They weren't growing corn. Corn is something that came from America. But sometimes in the translations we'll see the word corn, but they're just talking grains. Okay, so if you're growing all the multitude of different kinds of grains that you could grow, 20% of whatever you produce had to go to the government. And it actually went to the temples and was deposited in the temple granaries. And it was there for a variety of reasons. Just like the Levites, if you gave them an offering of grain, if you gave them an offering of oils, or you gave them, you know, if you were a sheep farmer, you know, a herdsman, you might give them, you know, you had a hundred sheep that, you know, produced a hundred and twenty lambs, and then you had some of the used dye, and then you replaced those. But what you produced in a given year, that was what you could sell for other things that you might need. But 10% of that was supposed to go to God. Well, God doesn't need any sheep. You know, he doesn't. he's not going to come down and eat it. He doesn't need any grain. He's not going to come down and eat the grain. But it's supposed to go to the house of God. And we'll see that again. We've seen that before. Well, the Levites could receive those gifts on behalf of God because the Levites belong to God. That's what the scriptures say. I didn't make it up. They belong to God. So when you gave it to the Levites, if they had too many sheep, they could sell some of those sheep and turn it into something that they didn't have enough of. You know, they didn't have enough oil. They didn't have, you know, like uh, maybe medicines. You know, it's what we would call essential oils today. That's a kind of a brand, brand name, but it's also a descriptive term. And, you know, that they could be used therapeutically. And, of course, since the Levites were in charge of serving the congregation of the people, and we know that, they, that the Israelites were allowed to take oils with them when they left, along with incense and other things, that uh, they used that in caring for one another. And the Levites were in charge of caring for the congregations, you know, the tabernacles of the congregation. That's the people of the congregation. And so they would have a use for that and a value to that. And you can follow the history. And we've talked about it in other places where we talked about Essenes who had a certain number of Levites amongst them because Essenes was a, a, a philosophical approach to serving God. And also a philosophical approach to an interpretation, a unique interpretation of the Torah that was distinctively different from the interpretation from the Pharisees and certainly distinct from what we see coming out of the Sadducees and also even other groups like what we call the Zealots. But the Zealots weren't really a single group. They were just extremely zealous people who had a particular version of the Torah interpretation that was different than others. So they ended up being called zealots because they did certain things. So all these are different groups that had, you know, like denominations. 
do today in Christianity. But only one interpretation is correct. Private interpretations might be correct, but they might not be. But the interpretation by the Holy Spirit, that's correct. But then the question comes up, what is the interpretation of the Holy Spirit? (laughs) So, that's where you have to go back to meditate. To quiet your mind so that you're not listening to all the other voices out there, all the other chatter out there of people saying, this is what it means, and this is what it means, and this is what it means. You're going to have to decide based on the leading of the Holy Spirit rather than what you heard on YouTube or you read in a book or or that you got uh, on His Holy Church Keys of the Kingdom. You You can't believe me because I said it. Who am I? You have to learn to listen to that Holy Spirit. In order to listen to that Holy Spirit, I don't know how good a hearing you are, you're going to have to be nearer to it, draw nearer to it. And one of the things that draws you nearer to it is sacrifice. And the the word that we see for Corbin, which is does mean sacrifice in the New Testament, it's an Old Testament word, it comes from a word that means to draw near. So, as you lay down your life for your fellow man, little bit by little bit, portion by portion, by charity, by sacrifice, you will be drawn near to the Lord, which would mean also draw near to the Holy Spirit. But in order to get, the closer you get to the Holy Spirit, the closer you get to the light that will expose the truth all around you. And now that's really good today. It's always good, but especially today, when there are so many lies around you, (laughs) so much confusion around you, so much mischief around you, which is people using lies to upset you, to keep you off guard, to distract you, to get you to run down this path or to run down that path or look for this solution or look for that solution. But there's only one real solution, and we can talk about it, but what that means for you, you have to hear directly from God. There's nowhere in the Bible where it says, these are instructions for Steve, <laughs> or these are instructions for Beatrice, or these are instructions for, you know, whoever. You know, it just doesn't say it that way. You have to actually connect with God. In order to do that, you got to shut off all those other noises in your head so that you can hear His voice. And one of the ways to do that is to humbly meditate and wait upon the Lord to see what He has to say. Now, you may get lots of messages that way. So, you, you get things like the Bible to hold up and say, is the messages I'm getting correspond to what Moses and Jesus Christ were saying? Well, now you have to know what Moses and Jesus Christ was saying. And I can tell you what they said. You can read it for yourself. But I can show you things that people got wrong. Or don't seem to be correct. You can determine for yourself whether I'm pointing out what they got wrong. 
And as we've been going through Exodus, we've seen lots of words, altars, unhewn stones, uh, leaven, uh, ornaments. All these things, they have more meaning than most people ascribe to them or pin on them. And of course, as Jordan Peterson and his crowd was going through this, we were seeing that all their scholars were missing it. Well, one of the things, when they read, Thou shalt not seethe a goat, a kid, meaning a kid goat, young kid goat, in its mother's milk, they all just went on. <laughs> like, nobody said, that seems like a strange place to put that. <laughs> they just went on. And somebody said that it has to do with mixing meat and milk, you know, together. And, of course, it doesn't have anything to do with meat. And it doesn't have anything to do with milk. It doesn't even have anything to do with fat as a thing. Because the same word there that's translated milk is also translated fat. I mean, the same letters, they also translate into fat. And and there's several words there that translate several ways. And there are also several words in that one verse at the three places that it shows up. And that's interesting that Moses mentions it three times. We talked early in our study of Exodus how Moses has such a definitive structure to almost every chapter and certainly to every book and so that you end up finding certain words right smack dab in the middle of the book <laughs> which uh, Dennis Prager will we'll talk about it another time says right there in the middle of Leviticus he puts one thing that everything else hinges on so what is that one thing and, and unless you go and count all the letters or unless you somebody tells you 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 probably will miss it. But you you won't miss the essence of it. Even if I point it out, you may still miss the essence of it, the spiritual meaning of it, if I told you where it was. But if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, even if I don't tell you, you will know the truth. And when somebody points it out, you'll say, oh, well, that makes perfect sense because I already knew that. Because it was written on my heart and upon my mind, which is another topic that's going to come up in the next two chapters, 34 and 35. So, we could probably get into it here pretty quick. Uh, just looking at the page 34, I put a lot of headings in there to kind of help us and there, you know, come up again, but others know. In other words, Moses is going to go up, others are not able to come up. This is the second time. He's going up to get God to write upon tablets of stone what a lot of people call today the Ten Commandments. And so we're going to look at that because things are being done different this second time after Moses broke the first ones. And there's so by comparing some of the different approaches to these statements or, or these events we may get a better idea, but we'll do that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom.
Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're going to look at 34. We're going to get into it. And and almost all of these now, I've been up for, uh, I don't know how long I've been up, but a long time, talking to other people and preparing for the show and going through uh, 24, I mean 34 and 35 and and every time I look at these, I've looked at them before, and but every time I look at them, the message goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so what I did with the the seething of a goat in its mother's milk is we had one show and we touched on a lot, some of the obvious, like what is this all all about? And then now I've gone through it again, and I it's it's the book the page is almost the book size now, and I know I'm not done with it because I know there are still more and more layers where we get down deeper and deeper. And we can do this with lots of different verses in the Bible, and we have. But what we're trying to show you is that people can be misled by a false interpretation. Of course, the New Testament tells us that, you know, private interpretations is, is not the way to go. And private interpretation is everybody. You know, from from me on up to the Pope, or maybe me down to the Pope, <laughs> or across the board to the Pope, or Billy Graham, or anybody. Now, everybody has a right to express their interpretation, but their interpretation cannot change what the original author meant. And if it is an inspired book of the Holy Spirit of God through his Holy Spirit, writing upon the hearts and minds of the authors, then it's only the the opinion of the Holy Spirit that allows you to interpret. And it's not you interpreting, it's interpreting and informing you as to what it means. And what I'm saying is that there's many levels at which you can understand the meaning. But if they take you out of so you you see only the physical. So you're you're like I said, uh, Sam Harris says a goat is a goat is a goat. Well, not <laughs> not in the Bible. It's not always a goat. It can be a goat, but it can be lots of other things. So you have to look at all these other things to get. Uh, a sense of what they're saying and then once you get the idea that oh well this word can actually mean something else and then when you see these peculiar statements you can say oh well that connects to this and that connects to that and you know they have a chart somewhere where they show all the bible quotes in that, in that you know like all the chapters and and the different books laid out and then they draw lines, red lines, blue lines, or whatever, different color lines, to all the different... And this verse has to do with this verse over here, and this verse has to do with that verse over there. And it's fascinating to look at, but it doesn't have all the connections. Because all the connections would fill the whole room with light. But if you fill the whole room with light, you don't need to chart anymore. (laughs) Because... The idea is not to connect the Old Testament with the New Testament or this verse with that verse. It's to connect you with the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit can 
refine your actions day by day in a way that I could never do or never want to do that the Bible can't really do by itself because it's actually connecting you with what God needs you to do in a given moment. Very specifically what God would like you to do in the given moment. But God gives you free choice. He gives every one of you free choice. Because you cannot have love without choice. But once you make that choice of love thy neighbor as thyself and love God with thy whole heart, mind, and soul, if you make that choice, now you've used up your choice. Now you you have to do what God wants you to do. But you're okay with that because that was your choice to do what God wants you to do. Occasionally God may say do this and you'll say, oh, can this, this cup pass before me? I mean, this is... This is a lot, God. I'm like, you know, Gideon, you really want me to do this? Am I seeing you correctly? Can you show me another sign to make sure I got this right? God will have that conversation with you. That's an individual thing. But if you're really making the choice to do what God wants you to do, you'll do it. If you're just saying you love Jesus, you're just saying you love God... That you're going to be given those choices and you're going to say, well, he doesn't want me to do that. He wants me to go over and watch the game. <laughs> he wants me to go over and do this. And and when you reject, really reject God, even though you say you love God, you're saying, Lord, Lord, but you're not doing the will because you don't really love God. And that's why you have that Bible, like I said, in the first part of the show, you can hold up and you say, wait a minute. God said, thou shalt not murder, and I want to kill this guy. Well, that's not God telling you to do that. And we, we've seen that. They didn't, they weren't supposed to kill the Egyptians. They weren't supposed to go, they weren't to kill Cain. But supposedly in the Old Testament, God is making all these rules like, put this guy to death, and put that guy to death, and put that guy to death. And I'm saying, no, he's not saying any of that. He's not saying slaughter 3,000 people at the camp of the golden calf with your swords. Just slice them up and hack them and whack them. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that if you won't consecrate to the Lord, you can't come in. And and if there were 600,000 people there, like uh, Ben Shapiro said, and there were 12 tribes, that's... You got like 50,000 Levites. You know, maybe, maybe I'm overestimating. Maybe it's 40,000 Levites. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's 30,000 Levites. But there were only 3,000 people. They said, you can't come in. And they can sit there and they can yell, well, we want to come in anyway. Well, there's 30,000 guys with their swords at their side saying, no, you can't come in. Not by the hair of my chinny chin chin. No, you can't come in. You can knock all you want, but you can't come in the camp until you openly dedicate yourself, consecrate yourself to what Moses is telling us we need to do. And they couldn't come in even if it meant that they might die. Now, I'm sure there was probably like 4,000 or 5,000 that were siding with the 3,000 who stuck to their guns and would not consecrate themselves. And they said, well, wait a minute, we'll, 
We'll consecrate ourselves. We'll come in and we'll consecrate ourselves to this. Because we don't want to go with these other guys. And we don't want to leave Moses. And so they got down to at least 3,000 thought they could make it on their own. And they left. And we don't know what happened to them. They fell away. That's that's what that story is about. And we have a whole article that you know, a whole section of an article on put to death and, and that very topic. So you can go read that and find out why I say that. Because there's there's evidence right in the scripture that that's what it is. Now, I'm sure a lot of Orthodox people who believe in their teachers and their rabbis or their priests and their ministers more than they believe in God and the truth, they're going to say, no, I'm wrong. And... It, they did kill those 3,000 people and they put them to death. Although it didn't say that. It says they fell. Now, the, there's other places where it's mentioned. But anyway, you can go look at that because that's not the topic. We're on Exodus 34. And it begins with a section I've entitled right now, Come Up Again, But Others Know. Because that's the essential of these three verses here. Is that, and the Lord said unto Moses, Hew the two tables, tablets of stone, like unto the first, and I will write upon these tables the words that were in the first tables, which thou breakest. Now a lot of people will debate that he, he changed the word somehow on the second tables. Well, he just said he's going to write the same words that he had on the first one. Now, was there some kind of difference that he he wrote the words that was on the first ones, but maybe he had to add something else, or we don't know. We have no idea what was on the first ones. So he may have put the words that were on the first ones, and maybe there was only seven commandments. <laughs> And then when he wrote the second ones, he he said, we're going to have to extend this out so that you understand better. So I also wrote these other things so that you would understand better. Now, I'm not saying that's what took place, but that could have taken place. It's just not specific. We know the words that were on the first one were on the second one. We don't know if he added anything extra. We just don't know. And, and at least I don't know. And I don't have a problem with that. I don't need to know. Because I, I know the way, you know, God wanted us to go. And the ten statements that were on those tablets, according to what we have recorded in the text, tells me and reconfirms what God has already put on my heart. Okay. So, we got that. And he mentions that, which thou breakest, which Moses broke. So, he's kind of rubbing that in. So, hey. <laughs> So then we got two. And be ready in the morning and come up in the morning unto Mount Sinai and present thyself there to me in the top of the mountain. So this be ready in the morning and repeat and come up in the morning, there's there's a significance to that. But we'll just keep on the shallow level that this was telling Moses to get ready to come early and come early and up to Mount Sinai where he's going to meet with 
the Lord. And number three, and no man shall come up with thee, neither let any man be seen throughout all the mount, neither let the flocks nor herds feed upon that mount. Nobody comes up, not not even shepherds or anybody. Everybody stays off the mount. That's different from the first time. So, you can speculate, maybe we'll talk about it later, why nobody can come up. Well, evidently some people screwed up. and So, God's saying, okay, we're going to do this second time, but we're not even going to let the other people come up. And so, hopefully they won't get into mischief while you're up here. So, now we got to verse 4. It says, And he hewed those two tables of stone, like unto the first. So they look kind of like the first. It might be something different, but it's at least like unto the first. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up unto the Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded. Now, how early was this? Before the sun even came up, so that he was up on the mountain before the sun came up. Him and took in his hand the two tables of stone. So he's carrying these two tables of stone. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him here and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And so I have footnotes there on the page where you see the word that he says here, command, which is a word that is translated command like 514 times and charge 39 times and commandment nine times. So, it is a word that means command. It's defined that way. And, you know, so, he, this is, he's actually telling Moses, this is, this is what I'm commanding you to do. And Moses did, was doing at this time, in verse 4, what the Lord commanded him to do. But he gets up there, and the cloud with the Lord in him, L-O-R-D, Yahweh in it, descends down and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So this idea of proclaiming the name of the Lord, that's significant. So he's going to call out somehow or other, so at least Moses can hear him. This, you know, it's a word that is translated, you know, call 528 times. So he's going to say something about his name and and he's going to define it there. But if we, we go back, I have some notes there on the side. It says... Uh, the first and best evidence of pardon. I, I was actually I have two quotes here from uh, the same uh, Matthew Henry's concise commentary, and uh, one of the things that other people were saying about it, which is the Matthew Henry, Henry com- commentary, he says, "When God made man in His own image, the moral law was written in His heart by the finger of God." without outward means. And then he goes on to say, the first and best evidence of a pardon of sin and peace with God is writing the law 
in the hearts. Now, of course, this is something that we'll see later on in Jeremiah and in Hebrews where God wants to write his law upon your heart and your mind. And one of the things that I've always said is that God wrote on stone because the Israelites being so stiff-necked and hard-hearted that God couldn't write upon their hearts. I don't believe that that concise commentary of Matthew is absolutely correct. I don't believe that God, I believe that God wanted to write upon man's heart, but that's an ongoing process. That's one of those mim processes of God flowing through your heart and your mind and walking with you and writing upon your heart day by day. He's not going to write upon it and then you say, well, now I've got the accurate doctrine. No, he's going to write upon in real time upon your heart. Do I turn left? Do I turn right? Do I go across this field? Do I go back? He's going to tell you what to do, but he's not going to make you do it. He's going to tell you. And he's telling you right now what you should be doing. But some of you are not listening. (laughs) And so you end up doing all kinds of crazy stuff, which we see the whole world doing, including making mischief for your neighbor. Now, why would you make mischief for your neighbor? Why are you making, trying to make your, uh, your neighbor angry? Why are you trying to create so much drama? Around you. And the reality is, if you want to get rid of some of that drama that's around you in your office space or the place where you work or everything, what you want to do is you want to turn, you know, I always use my fingers like I, not like I'm flicking a light switch, but like you do if you have a kerosene lamp, you turn the lamp up, you push a little bit more of the wick out, and the lamp starts burning brighter. And the brighter the light gets, the more the mischievous cockroaches leave the room. (laughs) And I was talking to somebody just the other day that if you're going to contend with evil, and evil's all around you. It's in your neighbor, it's in, in, in your boss, it's in your co-workers. Maybe not all, all of them, but he's around and he can use it, you know, like in the Matrix where all of a sudden, you know, the agents can just occupy somebody and turn them into an agent. That's a real thing. That, that can actually happen. Your defense against that is the Holy Spirit. And that's that only comes with the full armor of God. And so you have to turn on that full armor of God. And you will actually start protecting other people in in your office or in your company or wherever it is that, you know, the workplace that where you see this mischief going on. But if they suck you into being angry and reacting, you know, like Claggett in the story of Billy Budd, where he just wanted to make Billy Budd angry. He wanted Billy Budd to respond to him even if it killed him. That's the power that you're up against. But if you, your refuge from that kind of power is only in the Lord. It's not in getting the right written doctrine or memorized catechism. So, what God did, he didn't write upon their hearts and their minds necessarily. He did tell them a few things. But he put two trees in that safe place. You know, God's safe place. The real safe place. He put two trees there. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the other one was the tree of life. And as you ate of the tree of life, 
the that life moves through you and wrote upon your heart and upon your mind. But if you ate of the tree of knowledge, that process stopped. And now you're on your own. You're free-falling. And, and you go look for more knowledge and it will just take you more and more off. It'll, it will be a foul wind that blows you more and more off the course. So I just saw that when I was reading all the commentaries on this to try to get an idea of what other people think it says. No. God needs to write up on your heart today, tomorrow, and the next day. It doesn't just happen one time and then you take over after that. It has to be every day. So every day has to be a humble day of accepting the consequences of your decisions because that's what we see here. Moses had the decision to throw the tablets down and break them. And now we're seeing the consequences of that as much as we are seeing the consequences of the golden calf, which we'll get into as we go farther along in, in this chapter and the next. So, But one of the things I wanted to point out, that this idea of consequences, which is the wrath of God. That's All the wrath of God is the consequences that come about when you go against the, the right reason of God, the divine will of God, the law of nature that God created. If you go against that, there will be consequences. It, some of those consequences could be a blessing if you go according to that. If you go against that, contrary to it, the consequences are, we'll, we may call them wrath, or we might even call them punishments, but they're just the cause and effect of the choices that we're making, and we're making those choices sometimes out of ignorance because we lack knowledge, but sometimes out of, you know, we have an empty spot. You know, why do people cause this mischief and this drama? And we'll maybe touch on that more and more, but we're bringing it up now, and we'll just see where God takes us as we go through this. But those uh, there's consequences. You can be forgiven something, but there's still recompense. You still may have to, you know, like if if I went and robbed my neighbor, I, I stole a thousand dollars from him, and I got it hidden away, you know, out back somewhere, and then I feel sorry about it, and I repent to God. And I say, God, I, I, I stole this. I'm really sorry I stole it. Well, God could forgive me. If I'm really sorry, he could forgive me. But then can I say, well, I'm forgiven, so I don't have to give the money back. You know, like the guy in, oh, where art thou? I kept saying he was innocent and everything. But he did rob that Piggly Wiggly. <laughs> but he went and got baptized, and he says, all my sins are forgiven. You still owe Piggly Wiggly. You gotta still pay back Piggly Wiggly. You gotta pay. That's recompense. And that's everywhere in the judgments of Moses. It's everywhere in the biblical text that you have to pay back. And he said, well, Piggly Wiggly went bankrupt. There are no Piggly Wigglies. I can't give them the money back. Well, then you gotta give it to somebody else. You can't profit from God's forgiveness because Otherwise, God is not administering justice and mercy, which is a part of what his name is, which is where we're going. <laughs> so, And no man shall come up this time. Those who were allowed to come up closer to God are now barred. They're barred from some of the access that they could have had 
had they not slipped up. They're not barred as bad as the guys that were barred from the camp, the 3,000 that couldn't even come back to the camp, who had to just go off and make it on their own. But they are barred from getting too close to God. The same as Adam and Eve were barred from the tree of life when they chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and did not repent of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Because we see that in what they said. They didn't say, oh my gosh, God, I'm sorry. They said, you know, Adam said, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. It's your fault for giving me that woman and and it's her fault for, you know, tempting me. No, it's your fault. (laughs) That's what it is. So, what was the sin of the golden calf? If we're if they're now barred, was it because they made the golden calf? Is it because Moses broke the tablets? I mean, no, that only has to do with Moses. Why are they barred? Golden calf, that was idolatry, right? So we say that the golden calf is idolatry. And that was the sin. But, uh, but you know, like Jonathan and Jordan Peterson's group, he says that uh, this other golden cows that they build and everything, and it's part of the, nobody says that's idolatry. They say, well, well, they worshipped it, so that's why it was idolatry. And, of course, worship is serving it or acting upon something that it's, 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 no, it's not the Holy Spirit directing you. It's the fact that you put your wealth in this golden calf that's directing you. So, but anyway, we will explain why it's idolatry when we come back. This is going to be significant. It's going to tell you why you are, where you're at, and why so many people can make mischief for you today. We'll be right back. So, we're looking at this thing, idea of idolatry and the golden calf, and everybody will agree probably that the golden calf was some form of idolatry, but does everybody understand what idolatry is? And of course, everybody who reads the New Testament should know, and really the people who actually understand the Old Testament should know. But we can look at Colossians 3.5 and say, Mortify thyself, your members, which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, you could say that covetousness is idolatry, but you could also say that fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence are also idolatry. It could read both ways. I believe that it means all those things are idolatry because all those things can control your actions so that, I mean, people will say, you know, money is his God. That's his God. Yeah, he worships money. Well, that's his inordinate affection for money. Uh, his concupiscence, which is his wantonness for money. Maybe he's a whoremonger and, uh, you know, he he runs around and fornicates all the time. Well, that's his God. You know, his, his God is sex. So we say, because it's controlling his actions. It's moving him along. It's actually, you know, God may be saying, I want you to go over here, and he wants to go over there and do these bad things. 
which is simply a product of the fact that he doesn't really want to do what God wants him to do. And so every time you find yourself doing those things that you know God doesn't really want you to do, you have to realize that you don't really love God as much as you really should be loving God or you wouldn't be so tempted, at least tempted to follow through. But I don't want to condemn anybody. I'm just saying the way back to God is is to turn away from all these forms of idolatry. And one of the biggest forms, which is so obvious to me today, is the covetous practices of the people. They all desire benefits. Like in Proverbs 23, they desire the dainties of rulers. And like Jesus, the benefactors who exercise authority, they all desire those things. And at the expense of their neighbor, which is a covetous practice. And they just, people just don't see it. But it's, I mean, it's just basic 101. The meaning of the word covetous. But here we know that covetousness is idolatry. So what was so covetous about the golden calf? Well, they made the golden calf. They took the inheritance of all the wives uh, of their husbands and all their children. They broke them off so they didn't have them anymore. And now they were going to put them in this golden calf. So whatever choices that they had concerning that gold is not in their hands anymore. They've given up that right to choose. Everybody has collectively given up the right to choose of their gold and that this this family over here gave the right to choose of their gold and they've all put it down into this golden calf. And they no longer have the right to choose over it. It's now in the golden calf. It's in the treasury of the temple. And the reason they did that is so that people, if they saw the enemy coming, that they wouldn't suddenly abandon everybody. They would stay and fight to protect their valuables that are now in this golden calf. So that they were going to now serve the golden calf by staying with that common purse of wealth and staying loyal to the group that all claim to own a piece of the calf. And so, that's controlling their actions. Maybe God wants them to leave. But they can't, they're not going to do that now. Now something's going to influence their choice and make them stay. Make them stay loyal. They're not listening to God now. They're listening to the call of the wealth in the golden statue. They have a loyalty to stay and defend the community because their gold is now melted down, molted into a common purse of gold that we see as a statue. It isn't that fact that it's a calf and that it's a statue and it's a graven image. It's the fact that it's molten your choices and your wealth into a single source that you now will affect your decisions more than what God is telling you. And of course the reason you've moved into that position is because you weren't listening to God to begin with. You know, it, it said thou shalt not have any you know graven images, all this kind of stuff. Of course they hadn't read the first copy of the Ten Commandments 
And they may not, many of them may not have understood exactly how bad that was. They were not abandoning Yahweh. Because when they wanted to start a feast, because they thought they had really done a cool thing, they were going to dedicate the feast to Yahweh, to the Lord. So, it, we have this B-movie idea that, oh, they were worshipping this golden calf, and this was a god of something or other, you know, back to, you know, and I, I go through, but when we talk about that, and the, the article on Golden Calf, I tell you the name of the god that they had in the other. But the purpose of these gods in the other nations was to ensure the loyalty of the people. To ensure that they will fight because of their concupiscence, their wantonness, their inordinate affection for the wealth. And they had already fornicated now because they have now got, this is where Aaron comes in. Aaron knew the arts of the temple. He knew how to receive the grain that was put into the temple and how to redistribute it amongst the people. Because that's why they're putting it in there. Because that was the welfare system. The social safety net of Egypt. For Egyptians. For all the people who are part of that Corby system of statutory bondage. They're giving 20% of their labor to the government. And the government is supposed to give them free bread in time of need. You know, if there's no... They they keep 80% of what they produce for themselves, but if that is insufficient, they have these grain stores and other stores at the temple that can be redistributed to the people. Because we'll, what, what the gods can di- can't digest or can digest will not sour in the belly of a slave. The problem is, today... There's nothing in your granary. <laughs> your temple granaries. Your governments are bankrupt. They're all bankrupt. They have nothing to buy more grain. They don't have grain. Like I said, when I first went out and worked on a farm in North Dakota, back in the 60s, I was working on wheat farms in North Dakota. There were all these grain silos everywhere. Little ones, big ones, wooden ones, metal ones, everywhere. And there were little stickers on the door. It says, property of the federal government on the door of the granary. And I actually went up in some of the metal ones. We'd go up there in the metal ones. And you could come in through the roof. My cousin was showing me this. And we we could lay down there on the, the grain. It was kind of cool. Because it had, you know, it had been cool in the night. And so there was still a kind of a coolness there. And you could, he would take some of the grain and you'd throw it in your mouth and you chew it and chew it until it, and then it kind of dissolves, but some of it stays there. The gluten stays there. And then you do it some more and eventually you got chewing gum. That's how he got chewing gum is chewing wheat until <laughs> it turned into chewing gum. But, um, that, those, it, that was the property of the federal government. We were probably breaking the law by eating that, but we didn't eat a lot of grain. <laughs> but the, that, that was grain storage that belonged to the federal government. And it was a program that was set up years and years ago where the 
the farmers could sell their grain to the federal government at a set price. And then there would be an interest charge on that, that funds. But the, the collateral for those funds was that grain. So they could not sell that grain and or take any of that grain out of those grain bins that were on all these farms all over the country until the farmer bought that grain back. And he could he could do it where he's all of a sudden, you know, the price of grain goes up a little bit and he needs some more cash, so now he's gonna sell it. If they all sell it at harvest, the price will drop. Because every but if everybody has a grain so you had to build the grain storage and then you could store it there and the government would loan you money so that you could keep operating, keep paying the bills and and then when you wanted to sell the grain, you could buy it back with just that little marginal interest and sell it back. What that did is put seven years' supply of grain for everybody in the United States was stored on all these farms. But somebody got the bright idea, oh, we don't need to do that. <laughs> and so they ended that program and nobody's doing that anymore. So you haven't got that grain anymore. So you're set up for a famine like you cannot believe. But the church should be doing that. church should be going out there and buying grain from farms. The Levites, uh, their, your ministers should be doing that because... The early church was all the social welfare of the people. Now, they should first go to men who are part of the church that are growing grain. And then we say, well, you store this grain. We'll put a seal on this. This is property of the church. And if it's really the church established by Christ, there will be a cloak of protection on that grain bin that isn't it, a lot better than the stickers that the federal government put on there. That's very important because, see, when the Pharaoh's army came to steal the what belonged to the Israelites who were going out to serve God, they weren't doing a very good job of it yet, but that's where they were going. And Moses was with them that when they tried to steal from God's people, they were destroyed. They were absolutely, utterly destroyed. That's a principle. And that actually carries out in all the things that Moses is going to be doing. But people reading their Bibles today, they've been misled and they don't understand that process. But we'll be going through that. But anyway, on the page at Preparing You, we have we show you Ephesians 5.5. 5, For this ye know that whoremongers, nor unclean persons, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. What makes them an idolater? They're covetous man, who is desiring benefits at the expense of his neighbor. 1 Corinthians 5.10. Same thing. Fornication of this world. Most fornication, most adultery mentioned in the Bible is actually contractual fornication when you you have a covenant with God but you're making covenants with other gods where you go which is a, what we're going to get into as we continue through Exodus again I mean they've already said it but we're going to go a little bit deeper as we go so all this is explained over and over again 
by us and by the biblical text, but you have to be willing to see it. So, getting to that, what about the proclaiming of the name of God? The Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Well, the term merciful is translated from uh, rachum, meaning compassionate. So, God is compassionate, okay? That's actually from a word that means to love deeply. Not just love, but to love deeply. Or have compassion, or be compassionate for somebody. And clearly, God, we'll see in the text that God is compassionate for Moses. Uh, He was... Fortunately, Moses was compassionate for the people and asked God to spare the people. And God, in his mercy, did so. But mercy is tempered with justice. And so his judgment has to have mercy and judgment in it. So he says, and gracious, and this is important here, you won't get the next verses that are coming up. And gracious is translated from uh, another word, chanum. Uh, said to mean gracious, but actually has to do with showing favor. Also can mean kind of pity. But God said, way back, remember when he was talking about the judgments of Moses? They weren't to favor the poor in their judgments. If the, if the poor did something wrong, he should be held accountable for it. That, that's not the way your modern government thinks. Your modern government thinks, oh yeah, he rioted, but he's poor, so we'll let him off. Uh, we, yeah, he burned down this store. Yeah, he smashed this lady in the head with a board. We'll, we'll just let him off. Because, you know, he's poor. You know, he was hungry. Like all those guys who busted into the gas station recently in the news. When the guy went to the restroom and he comes out and the whole gas station, is they busted in and just a crowd, hundreds of guys were going in there and just stealing everything. I said, well, they're hungry, you know, and they're driven to do this. They weren't picking up food. Uh, they were picking up mostly cigarettes <laughs> and condoms and things like that. They And probably some candy bars and stuff, but they, they're not hungry. They're just perfect savages. But you made them perfect savages with a hundred years of legal charity, which we've covered a lot of times. So, anyway, this... This idea of gracious in, in the translation has to do with what it, it has to do with mercy and, and pity and some sort of favor. But what is God's criteria for this graciousness? And so that's what we need to keep that in our mind. So he also says that he is long suffering. Uh, this nature of long suffering, what does that mean? Well, the wrath of God doesn't come immediately. I mean, you step out of the line and a lightning bolt strikes you right away. That in the worldly gig of time, it takes time for the wrath of God to get around to you. But it will eventually get around to you. It sometimes can, the process can speed up where in a very short period of time after you do something, the consequences for what you did come back on you. If you repent, change your mind, ask forgiveness... God may forgive you, because he can see your heart better than me, but you still may have recompense. So, anyway, so if we get into that, so we we saw that the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord God, 
So there's two things there. Lord Yahweh and Yahweh God. And of course, God is not the name of God. God is the ruling judge. Yahweh, the ruling judge. And that's going to be important to understand in the verses coming up. Merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Abundant in goodness and truth. Important concept. Because abundance is going to play in. Because the fat of the land is the abundance of the land. The milk of the land comes with the abundance of the land. If you don't have much grass, you're not going to have much abundance. Uh, you're not going to have much milk. And, of course, that was how it, this all started with the dreams of pharaohs that there were going to be seven fat calves come out of the river. And then there were going to be seven lean calves. The fat's not going to be there. The abundance is not going to be there. So, that's symbolic. So, that actually will play into understanding the seething a goat in his mother's milk. Keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, and that will by no means clear, it says the guilty, that's added by the translator, but that's what it says, it's clear, and that's reasonable to put it in, I'm glad they put it in italics so that you can tell, visiting the iniquity. It clears the iniquity, but still visiting the iniquity, of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children until a third and to a fourth generation. Other places we see it till seven generations, but for some reason they said fourth here. So what they're saying is, yeah, okay, I've forgiven you. You're not going to pay recompense, but this will come back to haunt you because the recompense has to be. Because, why? Because God requires you to pay debt because God wants to be mean to you. I mean, when you you tell your children to do their chores and they didn't do them, you know, the other day somebody didn't do their chores uh, round about me. It wasn't my kids. But um, I knew that they were going to go somewhere with some other people. And I knew they hadn't done certain chores and by the time they were supposed to do them. And I said, so, have you done da-da-da-da? And they said, no, but I'm going to do that right away. Because I said, yeah, you need to do that before you go. And so I, I point that out with my family as they're growing up, and with other people's family, and of course in the kingdom of God, we need to point that out. And that's what Moses is pointing out here. Is that there has to be an accountability. Uh, God has forgiven them, but there still has to be that accountability. It has created, in the whirly giga time, repercussions that can actually pass down to other generations. He is not going to smite those other generations, but he's going to visit that iniquity upon them. Why? Because he wants to make them stronger. That's why I want the kids to do their chores and learn to do their chores and learn to yeah, I had uh, kids that aren't even neighbors. They're a long ways away here. Uh, the other day, different group of kids. Uh, and I'm I'm talking to one of the kids about, because uh, they, they were told to pick everything up because they were going to get going. And he says, well, I picked up my stuff. 
And I just told this, it's a little bitty girl. I says, when my kids were growing up, nobody's chores were done till everybody's chores were done. So you may have your stuff picked up, but does your little sister have her stuff picked up? Because if she doesn't, then your chores aren't done. And so you may need to pick up some of her stuff. Well, of course, guess what? They left something behind because everybody didn't work together as a team. <laughs> some of the kids were mischievous. So, but, you know, it's it's lessons like that. And this is what got, uh, put it on a little level of a little tiny couple of little girls. But God's putting it on the whole nation. But the Spirit is repeated over and over again at all these different levels. And so, right now, the United States and every nation in the world is in debt by trillions of dollars. That's not going to go away because Jesus forgives you. There's still going to be an accounting of that. So, everybody needs to understand that. So, he said this, and right when he said this, God said that there would be this visiting upon, even to the fourth generation, Moses made haste to bow his head toward the earth and worshiped the Lord. And of course, I have, a, you know, I have to understand worship the Lord. But it says, And he said, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant before all thy people. I will do marvels such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people amongst which thou art shall see the work of the Lord. For it is a terrible, mighty uh, thing that I will do with thee. So, God is going to protect them. They're still, he hasn't taken away that. He has to, in order to be merciful to them, he has to hold them accountable. Because it won't make them stronger. It won't give them the, the, the sense of paying your responsibility, paying your bills. And see, We've been doing that for a hundred years, not paying our bills, and nobody even, they think that they're just off scot-free. But in the worldly gig of time, there's going to be consequences. So, observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee Amorite and Canaanite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. So, what he's actually saying, he will drive those people out. A lot of people will be, tell, you know, a lot of Jewish scholars will tell you that the Jews drove those people out, that they defeated them. No, that God literally drove those people out, the, the people who were, had the character of the Amorite, we talked about what that means, the character of the Canaanite, which is the merchants of men, Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, Jebusite, these all have meanings. Those spirits, those mischievous spirits in people, they're going to drive out. God's going to drive out. If they do what he's saying. In other words, if you draw near me by doing what I'm saying, we're going to have to find out what he's actually telling them to do when we look at sacrifices. 
that God will drive these people, this spirit, the mischievous spirit in the nature of people. We don't call them Amorites now. We call them Canaanites. We call them all kinds of names, not Canaanites or Hittites. But we've seen that mischievous in your workplace. You've got some Canaanites in your workplace. You've got some Amorites. You got. You, I know you got a lot of parasites. <laughs> oh, parasite! No, it's the same concept. If you want to, like I said at the beginning of the show, you think I'm just randomly talking, but at the beginning of the show, I'm saying that as the Holy Spirit comes in you, and as that light turns up by the hand of God, turning it up in your heart. You will drive those mischievous spirits out of your workplace, out of your life, and maybe out of your grain bins, if you have any grain bins. <laughs> so, because this is how this invisible protection of the spirit, it's only invisible to people who don't see things in the spirit, comes about. So verse 12, take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whether thou goest, lest it be a snare in the midst of thee. So, that's important. And we'll cover that when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So, uh, just as we got to verse 12, I was explaining that they were saying not to make a covenant with the inhabitants. Let's make some kind of agreement with the inhabitants where you go, lest it become a snare to you. And of course, David talks about a snare. What should have been for your welfare becomes a snare. Paul quotes David about that the same idea of something becoming a snare for you. And he says, you know, like I say, he's quoting David because the Christians had a daily administration based on faith, hope, and charity. And the Romans had a daily administration where they served, you know, the free bread and grain of the Roman temples on the table of Rome, at the temples of Rome. You know, and so Paul in Romans... 11.9, he says, And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. We were just talking about recompense. Which is why I'm trying to bring all these ideas together. That if you're out there coveting your neighbor's goods through the temples of Rome or the temples of FDR or the temples of LBJ that where they have set up benefits that you can get from them. Of course, there are men who exercise authority one over the other, and Jesus said we weren't to be like that, where we have benefactors who exercise authority one over the other. And, of course, Moses already said that if we build altars, which are councils of men, that the same word for altar is the same word for a gathering of men. Gathering of stones is the same word for a gathering of men. And, and you're giving all these offerings to them. They're burned up to you, but now those men have charge of those offerings. And these are daily offerings, so what comes in one day may go out the same day or the very next day. Because you, you want to keep helping everybody and making sure, I mean, they're, they're going through t- tremendous physical effort to move along and, you know, even when the water flowed, they had to cultivate the ground and spread the water around to grow grass, to feed the livestock. So they have to, a lot of people working, 
A lot of people working, taking care of one another. And a lot of people need help. And who's helping them? There's no talk about that except for the fact the firstlings of your flock have to go to these altars of sacrifice. The Your contributions go to the altars of sacrifice and those people in charge of them, they were the priests that were coming out of Egypt with them. Aaron was one of those. All you know, all those guys. They were kind of the Levites. Were the priests that were helping take care of the? They were the stones of the altar. They they gathered in the tens, hundreds, and thousands to be the stones of these living altars. And that was their social safety net. They had a social safety net in Egypt, which was the temple granaries. Which is the same as we see in Rome, and the same as we see in Athens, and the same as we see in Corinth. If you study that, if you, if you know what the temples are doing, so what did they have to replace that? We, we know they have replaced the army with a militia of tens, hundreds, and thousands that go out there and fight if somebody attacks them. They stand their ground. So, we know that. We know they have courts now. The people's courts. That are based also on the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And they they pick men. I mean, Moses supposedly picked men. But he's really appointing men that the people are picking. Because he doesn't know all these guys. But they're saying, well, we trust this guy. We trust this guy. And through this network, I mean, 600,000 people. How is he going to know who to appoint? And there has to be this whole network of judges. But it begins at the grassroots with a trial by jury. By a congregation. Ten men, just like we see with Boaz and them, ten men decide fact and law. They have the judgments of Moses, which a lot of people are calling laws and statutes and almost like the Hammurabi codes, but they're not. They're judgments. It says at the beginning... We created a whole page to show you what judgments are. I'm going to be adding to that more and more and more. And we have lots of articles that I can link to that will show you that what Moses was saying is, look, in this situation, this was my judgment. In this situation, this was my judgment. He's setting up a series of precedents that you can go back and look at to get an idea of what Moses thought was justice. But it's what God thinks is justice that's key and every situation is a little bit different. And if you're going to have the heart of the law, it has to be real beating hearts. Hopefully, in your society, God is writing upon those hearts on a daily basis so that when you do go into court, you can get a judgment that is based upon the Spirit of God. But if you've already all decided that it's okay to covet my neighbor's goods through the power of government... I can guarantee you will not get justice in the courts. Because you don't have any just people to put on the jury. Because they're already blinded to the fact that you're not supposed to be coveting your neighbor's goods. They're all doing it, but nobody's explaining that. So anyway, so yeah. Have you made a covenant with anybody in your country, Australia, with uh, you know a contract where you say, that I will pay into your system, your temple system, 
a public religion, and I will pay into that, and you will set the amount that I have to pay into, because it won't be a free will offering, it will be a compelled offering now, but then you have to give me entitlements. Because if you do that, if you make those covenants with the inhabitants where you go, they may become a snare to you. And of course they have, which is why everybody's back in the bondage of Egypt and it's worse than it was in Egypt. Verse 13, But ye shall destroy their altars, break their images, cut down their groves. That sounds violent. It, you know, that's not what he said. Well, the Egyptians are coming. You shall destroy the Egyptians. I mean, there is a word there that they have that you can translate into destroy. You know, it's, I, I can tell you what the word is. It, it's, it's nathats. Nun tov tzedek. Tzedek has to do with righteousness. Tov has to do with faith. Nun has to do with flow. And yeah, it's translated destroy five times. It appears 42 times, but it's only translated destroy five times. Overthrow is translated overthrow. It also says break down or throw down. Maybe it means to reject their altars, throw them down, overthrow them by creating the altars of God that do a better job than the systems that are based on force. Are you doing a better job than the systems based on force? That's what he's saying. I, I will tell you that's what he's saying, but I give you some evidence there on the page so you can look it up. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to run in and destroy the social security system. <laughs> Throw down their altars. We're not supposed to be doing that. Uh, that's just not what it's all about. Or any more than the Levites are supposed to go in there and kill 3,000 people. You go to Levite Smite, and we explain that. It was those people who would not consecrate. They're not going to be a part of our altar. They're not going to be a part of our social safety net. They don't, we're not going to take care of them. We're going to let the stones of the altar know these guys are out because they're not with us. So, you know, do not support them in their vagary. That's actually a word, but it's an old word. Don't support them. And so that's that's what he's saying. He's saying, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring. They call it whoring after their gods. That's why I'm saying most of the whoredom, most of the adultery that you see is when you go after these ruling judges, because that's what God's means, Elohim means, that you're... Your Elohim, your ruling judge, should be the God who caused the sea to part and the water to come back in and destroyed the enemy for you and and drove out the Amorites and the parasites and all that stuff. That's supposed to be your God. But if you're going to make other men your God, you're going to end up like the Ukraine where tens of thousands of Ukrainians are dying in a proxy war uh, for oil companies. And... The Russians and the New World Order and all that stuff. They're not saving their country. They're destroying their country. And there's going to be a huge famine because nobody's planting the crops. They should be all out there plowing the fields. Are they plowing the fields? Well, a lot of them are dead. 
They're not going to be plowing the fields. No, it, we're, we're looking at another famine in the Ukraine. History repeating itself. So, and do sacrifice to their gods, which of course we know you're sacrificing to their gods every year. But then it says, and one called thee, or you're called upon, or you call, and thou eat of that sacrifice, because that sacrifice is based on forced offerings, and so, therefore to desire those benefits is a covetous practice. Because that's the big danger. Because that's what seals you in the snare. So verse 16, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go whoring after their gods. In other words, and this is, you know, I've seen this hundreds of times. People, well, we want to be safe. I mean, a woman, by nature, wants the nest secured. She she wants the protection. And if you've only got one system in town, which is a system based on force and covetous practices, where you have to make an agreement with ruling judges, then she's going to want you to join that system. But if there's another system in town, based on what Abraham is doing, what Moses is doing, or did, and what Jesus Christ told us to do, then the wives may not go whoring after that system. They say, well, let's belong to the kingdom of God. Let's belong to God. Let's do it the way God said to do it, the way Moses is saying to do it. But if you go by the interpretation I've been seeing, a lot of other people come out, come up with, you're not going to understand it. Verse 17. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. Molten gods. What is that? Now, we know that this molten god that uh, we see that was made by Aaron was, you know, it became a part of this graven image that of a calf. But wasn't that it was a calf? It, it wasn't that it was a replication of a calf. It, it actually had something to do with it molten. And, of course, this is what we were explaining. It was a common purse. And there's all kinds of quotes about one purse. But they melted their wealth down. They put it into a single Fort Knox. And they didn't have it in their pockets anymore. They cast it away from them. And they gave it to Aaron and he molted it down. Of course, it wasn't allowed to go for a hundred years. Like you've let it go in Fort Knox. And now it's not even in Fort Knox. (laughs) Or whatever country you're in. All the countries have done it. That you created this single purse. This, you molted your wealth, you melted your wealth together. And that became your covering, your veil. You were now veiled away from your wealth, but is now in this other system. You, you weren't to do that. But people are still doing that, and they have done it, and everybody in America has done it. So that's why they're in the mess that they're in. But then he goes on to say, so you're not to do that, but he says, the feast of unleavened bread shall thou keep. Now, because leaven means cruelty, so the feast without cruelty, that is producing bread without cruelty, producing resources without cruelty, without forcing the contributions of the people, a feast of charity, a feast of free will offerings, that 
you need to keep. And it says, seven days shalt thou eat unleavened bread. There's always a significance to the seven. It's not, don't count days. It's, it's about a precept. As I command thee in the time of the month of Abid, for in that month of Abid thou camest out of Egypt. Well, everybody's still back. Abid has come. <laughs> Everybody is still back in the bondage of Egypt. And they, they live by forced offerings. And they covet their neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority one over the other. Because they've made covenants with gods who are now the ruling judges of their offering. They don't get to decide what they want to give. The power, they're not operating according to the perfect law of liberty. They're operating according to the imperfect law of force, fear, and fealty. And so they have been snared. 19. And all that openeth the matrix is mine. Every firstling amongst thy cattle, whether ox or sheep, that is male. But the firstling of an ass thou shalt redeem with a lamb. And if thou, because you don't eat the ass, you can redeem that with a lamb, and thou redeem him not, then shalt thou break his neck. All the firstborn of thy sons thou shalt redeem, and none shall appear before me empty. Now, do you actually break his neck? Do they actually want you to go up there? I don't know about you, but has anybody... Imagine how hard it is to break the neck of a donkey. Because donkeys are almost as stiff-necked as an Israelite. (laughs) So, that may not mean what you think it means. But the point is, nobody's going to eat the donkey. So, you can replace, but you may need the donkey, so you can keep the donkey. But you need to replace it, redeem it with a lamb. If you don't redeem it with a lamb, then you're... Your donkey may end up with a broken neck somehow or other. You, you, it's going to, in the worldly gig of time, the wrath of God is going to play into that. Don't be selfish. God is telling you. Six days shall thou work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest in earing time, and in the harvest thou shalt rest. Now that is a very symbolic statement, and we're going to understand more about that when we get into subsequent verses. But you can put a pin in it for now. 22. And thou shalt observe the feast of weeks and the first fruits of wheat harvest and the feast of ingatherings at the year's end. Thrice in the year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. So appear and they're not supposed to appear empty handed. So, we'll just go read on a little bit. For I will cast out the nations before thee and enlarge thy borders. Neither shall any man desire thy land when thou shalt go up to appear before the Lord thy God thrice in the year. So, he's saying there will be a divine protection. He's going to, he's going to implement this. And I know a lot of people think, oh, they charged into Canaan and they killed all the peoples. But we have a page on Canaan being peacefully uh, taken over. And and the the archaeological evidence is that's not how it worked. There were battles. And because everybody in the kingdom of God has a right to defend themselves. But they don't have the right to oppress 
the stranger in their midst. So they had no right to go in there and just slaughter people because they were already on the land. And the archaeological evidence is that's not what took place. What happened was a lot of people saw the altars that we have in Canaan and Perizzites and the Amorites and everything. That's not working. But we look over there at the Israelites and their altars are working. Those people are thriving and they are successful. So their mere presence tore down the altars of their enemies right before them. And the oppression of the Amorites and and the Perizzites and all these guys lost its power, lost its appeal. They were torn down in the eyes of the people. And many of the people said, I'm going with the Israelites. But there's always going to be holdouts like the 3,000, who say, oh, yeah, but we're not going with that. We're not going to, we're not going to go that way. We like our position of power. We like our position of control. We like the mischief that we make in the workplace. And so they may try to do battle with you. But if you stick by the Lord and let the Lord do battle for you, you'll come out a winner. But if you try to win, if you think you're going to do it, like Moses said, look what Aaron and I have done, you're going to be in trouble. And so, you need to understand the principle of how God works. I'm not saying get rid of your sword, but I'm saying you're not going to win as well by your sword <laughs> as you are by the sword of God. And so, because you're going up against overwhelming odds. So guess what? The next first is, and we won't have time to go through it all, but maybe we will attend to it again in the afternoon show. But verse 27, And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. So, He's explaining all that. But if we go back up to 26 again, this first fruits that is jump-starting the welfare system, the social safety net that Moses has been setting up all along that actually strengthens your militia because it's along the same line. It also strengthens the mercy in your courts because it's along the same parameters of tens, hundreds, and thousands. So you got your army, you got your courts, and you got your social safety net all complementing each other. And of course, that's the only way to properly attend to the law is with justice and mercy and faith. Justice, the militia. <laughs> no, I have to be careful using that word, militia. It's just people standing up for their neighbor. You know, and coming there when somebody is abusing their neighbor and saying, stop that. Stop abusing my neighbor. <laughs> that's that's all that. But then mercy uh, and, and faith. Well, that has to do with the courts, which are, need to apply mercy in order for justice to prevail. And it has to be based on faith, which is based on free will offerings and hopes that it will come back to you. So, those are the three branches of your government, but the division of the three branches of the government is in every man and his family. That's the division point. There's not, there's three types of branches, but there is 
if there were 600,000 people, let's just say there was 100,000 families, or maybe there was big families, maybe there was 50,000 families, but there was 50,000 branches of government. Because each one had their part to play in that government. And the amazing thing is the treasury of the kingdom of God and the kingdom that Moses was setting up was in the pockets of the people who daily sacrificed to fund the social welfare system, fund the army, you know, which is why I've told the stories about how they got all the ambulances in World War One. It was through private donation. It wasn't through the government. They still had the memory of when they used to be a free people. Most people don't know that. They think like, oh, we need ambulances for the army. We need schools. Oh, well, let's just tax our neighbor. This shows you how far and how long you've been going away from the kingdom of God. But those of you who are homeschooling and taking care of one another and learning to take care of one another's health, etc. You need to gather together like the early church. You need to gather together like Moses was teaching the people. And so then the, the mysterious little quote, Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. Just slipped right in there between the beginning of 26 and the first fruits, which is funding the social safety net and making no covenants with others and and keeping the covenants uh, of God, of the Lord, of Yahweh, that Moses is making. All of a sudden, Moses is so interested in it. Well, we, we don't want you boiling the meat of a kid in its mother's milk. Do you really think that that's what he's talking about? Because the three places that that shows up has nothing to do with the food laws. And we'll, we'll, we're making that clearer and clearer on the page, but we're also telling you what seething, which supposedly is boiling, what else does that word that it says boiling a kid in his mother's milk mean? What else does the word milk mean? And what else does the word kid mean? And how how does that play into the message that Moses is actually trying to give you? And why is he being so ambiguous? Is that a bad translation? Well, if you knew all the words in the Hebrew, you would know what that means. And your rabbis and your ministers would tell you. But we're out of time. We're going to add on to this recording, uh, which was the live broadcast through radio. And uh, to get the verses 28 to 35 into this recording. I am taking it from an earlier recording that where we did a study on Exodus 34. And in both recordings, there were things that were said in one recording that were not said in the other. This last one was a little bit more in depth. So uh, I thought I would just include the, those last verses to make this a complete study. And there isn't... We could go into much deeper into this whole idea of why Moses' skin was glowing and everything, but I'll save that for uh, internal studies that we do within the church, uh, so that people can get a better idea. But you know, we have to leave something for you to discover <laughs> what that is. Mean, but it's worth recording, and so we want to put it in. So I'm just going to clip the last bit of our first Exodus 34 examination and put it here. Uh, for your examination. Verse 28. 
And he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights, and he did neither eat bread nor drink water, and he wrote upon the tables the words of the covenant and ten commandments, which are ten statements, explaining how the universe works, how the cause and effect of the universe works, so that your days will be long upon the land, etc., etc., 29, and it came to pass when Moses came down from the mountain Sinai with the two tablets and the testimony of Moses a hand when he came down from the mount that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel that saw Moses uh, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid and came nigh to him. And Moses called unto them and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. Beware of that word, rulers of the congregation. We'll look at that at another time. And afterwards the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out. And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, there's actually something that is taking place different in Moses than the other people, but there is no reason why it shouldn't take place in you. And what you were seeing there, or they were seeing there, is much akin to what we see in the upper room when a light seemed to hover on the heads or over the heads or around the heads of those original people. That is for us all. If we will repent and turn around and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And Moses was telling us the same thing that Jesus Christ is telling us. This is why I interlace those quotes from Jesus as well as from Moses. But uh, we've made it through 34. (laughs) And like I say, there's links on the page where you can go to the article on milk and meat and those other things and first fruits and lots of definitions so that you can look for these things yourself. But until then, see you on the network. Peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.